welcome to this new edition of Café Klingendaal. In this podcast, you will listen to a panel discussion on Brexit, organized by the Klingendaal Institute on Friday, the 22nd of March, in The Hague. The discussion was moderated by Rem Korteweg, Senior Research Fellow at the Klingendaal Institute. It featured four renowned experts on British and European politics. John Pete, who is a political editor at The Economist, Georgina Wright, Senior Researcher at the British Institute for Government, Tim Oliver, Senior Lecturer for the Institute for Diplomacy and International Governance at Loughborough University London, and Nikolai van Ondarza, Deputy Head of the EU-Europe Research Division at Stiftung Wissenschaft und Politik. You will now listen to a selection of highlights from the discussion. What a week it has been. On Monday, up until 3 p.m., in the afternoon, the story was that Theresa May was on the verge of sacrificing her lead negotiator, Ollie Robbins, in order to get the ERG and the DUP on board in her meaningful vote that was going to take place that week. And then around 3 p.m., the British Speaker of the House, John Burko, dusts off a precedent from 1604 and says, thou shalt not have a meaningful vote number three without any meaningful change to the previous legislation. And that was Monday. And then on Tuesday, there was talk of, oh my gosh, what now? What is Theresa May going to say at the European Council? And then on Wednesday, she puts forth her extension plan, extending the talks to June 30th. And of course, everyone was wondering June 30th, June 30th, that's after the European Parliament elections. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit further. And then that evening, very importantly, she takes the stage, gives a press conference or a, a, a statement for um, the British public, basically antagonizing the Parliament that she relies on to get her meaningful vote through. It's a quite extraordinary moment, I think, in the Brexit saga, that she takes the stage venting her frustration with her own peers and colleagues. And in many respects, I do believe it backfired. Then Thursday, yesterday, we have the summit. Who expected that it would develop the way it did? And I don't want to dwell upon it because we have someone who was at the summit. John, what was it like, the summit? What was the mood? And uh, perhaps you can just Brief, briefly tell us where where we now stand. Uh, what was uh, what was the outcome of the summit? The first thing to say about the summit was we journalists were told it would all be done by about 7 p.m. Um, and in fact, it went on till well after midnight, which itself is quite interesting. Um, on the outcome, um, she asked for an extension, which was pre predictable because we only had a week to go. Um, she wanted as. Uh, Rem said 30th of June. The British believed that was consistent with not voting in the European Parliament elections. The Commission and the Council believed it was not consistent with not voting in the European Parliament elections. Um, and then what happened was there were a lot of dates being thrown around. People started to talk about the 7th of May, the 22nd of May, um, the 12th of April. And then also at one point people said, well actually well, what we're going to do is come back next week on Thursday. Um, the day before you crash out, have another summit, uh, and then you'll really feel under pressure. Um, and that, that became quite a running theme uh, throughout the evening. Um, and, and I think 
economy quite quickly. The leaders who were, were supposed to be discussing China, not Brexit, but they spent, in fact, the whole dinner discussing Brexit instead. Uh, uh, I think they thought, we don't want to come back next Thursday and do this again. So they were looking for a way of avoiding, avoiding that. Um, the two dates that emerged very succinctly, the ones that um, uh, Rema said, 12th of, 12th of April, if uh, you don't pass the deal next week, because then we need to think of something else. The reason the 12th of April is because that's the date at which the UK has to decide whether to participate in the European elections or not. 22nd of May, if you do pass the deal, because you clearly need a month and a half or whatever to pass the necessary legislation. Um, and that's, that's where we've come out. And it's quite a clever sort of compromise, because one of the things the EU27 were very keen not to do was to get the blame mm. if Britain crashes out without a deal. Um, uh, I, I would just add three sort of general reflections on, on the mood, since you asked me about the mood. Um, the first, and in, in some ways the most interesting, we were talking about it before, there has been widely tweeted a picture of the negotiators at this summit in the corridors of the Justice Lipsius building, taken by the Bulgarian permanent representative. And there are lots of sort of high-powered people all crowded around a little laptop trying to play with different dates. Um, the striking thing about it, apart from the sort of informality of all these um, senior officials all looking at one particular laptop, which I think is in the hands of the Council Secretary, Secretary General, Yepi Tranel Mickelson, although you can't see it very clearly. Um, but the striking thing about it, of course, is there is no British person there. Um, and the, what was going on all of yesterday was Theresa May was allowed to present her case for something like 90 minutes, did so predictably badly, and everybody got very bored, was listening to her, and she didn't answer any questions about what she would do if the vote failed next week. Um, she was her usual... Um, difficult, um, evasive self. After that, the EU leaders spent something like five hours deciding what to do about the British. Um, and they were doing this without any input from the British. Uh, and what's, what's a lot of the people in the media were saying, isn't this shocking that the, the, the rest of Europe is deciding our future without, without us being involved? But the answer to that is, I'm afraid if you're leaving the clubs, <laughs> that is going to be your life, uh, possibly forever. Um, a life shared with countries like Norway and um, to some extent Switzerland. And so that was my first sort of general reflection. Second general reflection was predictably, as always happens at summits, some of the British side were telling the press, oh, I think we're going to see some splits in the EU27. You know, the French are being hardline, the Germans are going to be softline, um, you know, the Belgians and the Dutch don't want more disruption at um, Zeebrugge and Rotterdam. Um, you know, we can peel them off uh, one by one and, and, and they'll, they'll eventually come around to our proposal. Um, as, as almost every time when this, this trope has been tried by 10 Downing Street, it turned out not to be true, um, or not to be true in the sense that there was disunity, and what actually happened was EU27 came up with a plan, uh, and then Donald Tusk was told, go out and tell Mrs May what the plan is, um, and she just has to accept it, and that's what she did. Um, this plan was not devised in any way by anybody in London, and she was told, you like it or lump it, um, but the third interesting thing was, despite what I just said about not, they're not, they're not being disunity, and I think the British always claim there's going to be disunity, and there very seldom is, um, this was the first time when the leaders really got engaged yeah. in an issue relating to Brexit, um, and quite quickly they said, we didn't think what the Council and what Barnier and the Commission and Juncker have come up with is going to do the trick. We're going to have to find some other way out of this, and they were actually negotiating in some detail about what dates to put in where and what conditions to set. 
And that's a change because almost throughout the last two years, the leaders intended to say, we're not very interested in talking about the details, we'll leave that to Barnier. Um, as long as he's doing a good job and, and nothing's going wrong, we don't need to think about Brexit. This is the first time I think EU leaders have really engaged on an issue relating to Brexit. And I think that that may be a harbinger for the future if and when we get to what will be the much more difficult negotiations about the future relationship. EU leaders are going to take a much closer interest in that and they're not going to leave it entirely to the Commission or the Council. The role of the European Parliament elections and how they would be structured and the way in which the UK could interfere with the European Parliament elections I think was one of the motives or perhaps one of the, the, the leitmotif to use that word, of the way in which the discussion about the extension over the past 48 hours has been, has been uh, held. The timing of the European Parliament elections. And perhaps just, I mean, immediately uh, putting you on the spot, could you just run us through why the European Parliament elections played such an important role in the backs of, of, of EU leaders' minds? I mean, what would it mean if the UK were to have uh, European Parliament elections, and it may well have to. I think it was also something that was very much on the minds in people in Berlin, and Chancellor Merkel in particular also uh, said that for her, uh, the European elections and uh, that Brexit uh, doesn't endanger the integrity of the EU institutions uh, was very, very important uh, for her in making uh, making the decisions uh, yesterday. And I think uh, the worst case scenario uh, from an EU27 and German point uh, of view would be if there was an extension beyond the 23rd of, of May, European elections took place, but not in the UK, and that this would uh, endanger or even question the decision-making ability uh, and leg the legitimacy of the next European Parliament. So that would be the, the worst case if the UK would have been granted a long extension but didn't commit to European elections. Um, if there was, for instance, as Theresa May asked for an extension until the 30th of June and something happened then and we would then have to deal with the UK that hadn't held uh, European elections. I, th I think the second uh, worst case or what's also on, on everybody's mind in, in Berlin surrounding the European election is how would it impact if the UK were actually uh, taking part in the elections. The UK has 73 uh, MPs, uh, it's not an unsubstantial uh, amount of MPs, uh, and all of our expectations uh, and polling for the European elections say that for the first time the two major parties will lose their overall majority, and it will make it much, much harder to find a stable majority also in the European Parliament. I think some are speaking about the Dutchification uh, <laughs> of, the, of the European Parliament with more small parties, with at least three, three political groups necessary to form uh, a coalition, and then if you have 73 of 750 MPs who are where it's not really sure whether they can take part in the yeah. coalition making, uh, how many hard EU skeptics there would be amongst those. So that is a real worry, also even if the UK, even if the UK uh, stays. So I think the the line here from from Germany was very clear. Also, um, if the UK wants. A longer extension, there needs to be uh, European parliamentary elections, and we need to have that commitment by April uh, the 12th, uh, because that is the last date uh, when the UK has to formally start a European election. And then there's finally a, a minor point, of which at least seems minor, which is the question what happens to Brits 
in Germany and other EU uh, countries, can they still run for the European elections? Mm. Uh, can they vote in the European elections? And only if there's a decision from a German, I think also EU27 point of view, by April 12th, um, then the European Parliament elections can be properly organized in all 27 or then uh, 28 EU member states. Right, right, and and I think it's I think it's important to underline what you say that if there is no a successful vote next week, that we then approach a April twelfth deadline, where the UK has to decide whether or not it will organize European Parliament elections, and what if its answer is no? Then it. I mean, Tim, do you... Well, then it's no deal. Then it's, then it's simply no deal. <laughs> yeah. and, and just going to you then, Tim, um, will the meaningful vote pass? First of all, Ben, thank you very much for, for um, inviting me to speak today. Um, <coughs> on that, let's just map out what may happen in the next few weeks in UK politics. Now, I have my, my own ideas, Georgina, John, Nikolai, everyone in this room will have their own ideas about what may happen in the next one or two weeks. But... Let's assume there is a meaningful vote next week and the Speaker gives way and allows that vote to take place because there's been a substantial change. Um, let's assume May loses it, which is still the most likely outcome because the speech that she gave angered everybody, including, by the sounds of it, her own chief whip. If you're angering your own chief whip, what hope have you got of whipping in your backbenchers or rebellious um, backbenchers especially? So it's entirely plausible that she's going to lose the vote. Two questions then arise. One, what happens to May? It's entirely plausible that the cabinet will finally step up to the plate and tell her it's time to go. But it's also plausible that she will sit there and say, well, no, I'm staying. But um, that I can't be challenged under the Conservative Party leadership race until um, December of this year. I'm going nowhere. I think somebody um, I was reading earlier said that she'd be happy in a cabinet of one if the rest of the cabinet resigned. Um, but let's imagine that even, you know, she did resign. That's one plausible scenario that she would actually be gone and the Conservative Party would begin some form of party race, um, which might take several months, but nevertheless, we begin a leadership race. What then happens to the Brexit process? You're in the kind of territory then in which possibly Parliament then goes down what's sometimes termed the indicative um, kind of um, vote um, route. So Parliament will get to choose what options it thinks, or the House of Commons, I should say, will get to choose which options it would like to see the UK pursue in its relations with the European Union. Some historians talk about um, critical junctures in a nation's history, and this may be one of those moments when Parliament <coughs> breaks and goes down a certain avenue. Um, we could see here a major change in the British political model in terms of one of the problems that May has struggled with, Corbyn has struggled with, is that they are they have been raised in a political system based on majoritarian, winner takes all, I get to decide what I want. May's problem since the 2017 election, as we were talking earlier, is about earlier, is that she has um, approached this as if she has a majority of 50, like most prime ministers would, rather than living in a minority government. But so is Jeremy Corbyn, as if he can dictate, as leader of the Labour Party, what Labour policy is. The problem is that British politics, unlike politicians or political systems elsewhere in Europe, as many of you will be aware, is not consensus-based, or at least publicly consensus-based. There is consensus, but it's not often seen in public. It's more majoritarian, winner-takes-all, confrontational. And we've got a situation here where a more consensus system would have helped 
from the 24th of June 2016. In fact, we probably wouldn't have got to a referendum if there'd been a more consensus system. But May, Cameron, and everybody else has just not got it in their political DNA to go about doing something more consensual. Therefore, we're running into a major political and constitutional kind of logjam here. Go back um, to the original question you asked me. Um, I considered what happens if she loses the vote. Just for a moment, let's consider the possibility that she wins the meaningful vote next week. As unlikely as that actually might seem, perhaps she offers a resignation um, as, the, um, as the price to pay for this, and she does get um, that vote through. I still think even if she won that vote, it would be a very tiny majority. So it then brings into question how stable the majority is for even that deal. Um, and there will be a series of technical votes afterwards in the following um, few weeks to pass the necessary legislation for the UK to formally exit. So just because she gets through that deal doesn't mean it's all done and dusted. Um, and it also, just, just to jump ahead even further, um, to echo something everyone said earlier, um, we're not even at the real kind of difficult negotiations yet, and British politics has almost exhausted itself um, before we've even got to the new UK-EU relationship. Um, and I think it's worth pointing out that um, the British people especially are not alert to the fact that this is not going to go away. This is going to drag on um, almost certainly through probably the next general election, whenever that is in the next, in the next few years. Um, but in terms of what's going to happen in terms of will there be any stable majority for anything, honestly, I, I just could not see a, a situation in which there is any stable majority for anything other than we know we don't want to leave on a no deal, but we can't quite vote to, uh, to rescind Article 50. We don't want to vote to um, keep extending. So I can see a scenario in which this ends up with a no deal. Let me, let me bring in Georgina. Something that prevented general elections from taking place so far was the Tory concern that a general election would produce a Labour majority. But with the emergence of the independent group, Chuka Amuna, the, 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 the 11 MPs, eight of them from uh, Labour, the electoral arithmetic has changed. And that Labour would split its votes between the independents and Labour, making a new Tory majority <coughs> in follow-up general elections more likely, meaning that it is much more palpable for Tory MPs to possibly get rid of Theresa May, support a no-confidence vote, or if she were to resign, to not go through a leadership contest, but to have general elections instead. I mean, could you comment on that I mean, second point as well? The only thing I'd say is, at the very beginning, when that Article 50 was triggered, I remembered reading several uh, newspaper articles saying that the Conservative Party at the time weren't worried about Brexit, they were worried about Corbyn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of that changed as the process became more and more complex with Brexit and the negotiations became more co- then they kind of started to worry more about Brexit. Um, but I think there is this worry about Corbyn, but I don't, as you say, the arithmetic has changed. The parliamentary process is in, is in, in crisis and so are the parties, you know, everything is, is breaking down. So it would be very interesting. Um, and then there was a petition launched yesterday about revoking Article 50 I just checked now, and it has three million three hundred sixty thousand signatures. But they're not all British. They're not all British. That is true. But it, but it, but it is quite. It, I mean, it, it is quite symptomatic of how a lot of people feel about about the whole concept that they don't even trust Parliament to deliver. They feel they need to ask and petition Parliament to do something. I just wanted to briefly touch on long extension because 
we, we mentioned European Parliament elections, was there a way around that? But I think there's a second point that the EU are a little bit worried about. And it is it touches on this in how would how would a UK remaining for longer impact the smooth running of institutions? AKA we have budget talks going on. The UK would retain a veto. Is the UK going to be obstructive? Or is it just going to sit in the room and not really perhaps intervene in the way that it did? Um, and I think that that's also playing on the EU27 lines. Again, push come to shove, I think they would back a long extension. Um, but it is something that they are thinking about. And the third thing, so European Parliament elections, how is the UK going to play its role uh, if it continues to be a member state? And thirdly is, what is your plan? I think they're still going to be asking, is this just delaying the decision or is this changing the decision? And that's where everything, I think, will learn the balance. Is it going to be because you want a second referendum? Is it because you're going to have a general election? Or is it because the government is changing its red lines and, for example, is open to a customs union and then there's a possibility for, for movement on both sides? So I think they will still be asking for clarity. I keep coming back to this, uh, this question of um, will Theresa May be still in a position to shape the outcome of the Brexit negotiations? Will she be there? And I'm increasingly uh, attracted to the scenario where it's almost unsustainable, her position as Prime Minister, uh, that it's untenable because of what she said over the previous couple of days, that she said, as Prime Minister, I will not be able to delay uh, um, Brexit any further. The fact that she's antagonized the MPs, that she relies on the Chief Whip, as Tim said. And, and in my mind, it's quite significant who the Prime Minister is, even if the House of Commons will play a more important role. And I'd just like to get, I'm particularly looking at our British friends, to get your views on um, how important is the Prime Minister at this point, whoever it is, and if it's not going to be Theresa May, who, and does it matter who? From my European point of view, is uh, the the problem or the the importance of the British Prime Minister is also the the trust or lack of trust by the other heads of state and government. Yeah. And I think Theresa May has gambled away all of the trust that she had by the other leaders, by again and again promising something in Brussels, and then within 24, 20, 48 hours taking it away uh, due to Eurosceptic pressures. Um, and I think the extension was just another example of that. David Liddington on the day before that in Brussels from everything that we've heard, promising a long extension request. And then Theresa May overnight changes her mind that she votes against her own deal uh, in, in Parliament, against the backstop, uh, that she whips essentially for no deal because of the changes of, yep. of some of the amendments that have completely cost her the trust of the uh, other, other EU27. A huge part of the problem now, now in these negotiations that the 27 believe they don't have an interlocutor with whom they can negotiate on an equal basis and whom, with whom they can get an agreement mm. of which they can get be sure that this is also implemented at home. Uh, they, everybody knows she doesn't have a majority. Uh, I, I, I haven't spoken to anybody in, in Berlin or Brussels who believes that she can win a third, third vote. Um, and that really is the problem why I think the EU27 felt, felt at the Council that they would need yeah. to take control of the process because they couldn't, uh, they couldn't trust uh, uh, her, her anymore. Thank you. And on that note, we are going to bring this, uh, this session to a close. I'm going to, just going to leave you with one parting thought. 
that Theresa May, in her speech on Wednesday evening, said that the British Parliament has indulged with Europe for too long. <laughs> and I am minded to say um, wishful thinking. I think that Europe's relationship with the UK and UK's relationship with, the, with Europe will continue to dominate British politics for years and years to come, which is a source for repeat discussions like we've had today. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Nikolai, John, Georgina, Tim, for making the trip over. And uh, so please join me in thanking our, our excellent panelists.